Drummers brought to you by Session Ace. Whether you're looking for high quality in ear monitors, high resolution studio microphones, or any other sort of thing that you need day to day as a musician, either in the studio or on stage, Session Ace provides remarkable tools for musical craftsmen. Find out more at SessionAce.com. Hey there, and welcome to Dial a Drummer. I'm your host, Brian Stevens. So great to have you here. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Carl Allen. Amazing conversation. This one's going to be just as good, I'm telling you. Anyway, I'm not doing much of a preamble this week, only to let you know where this particular interview came from. So every single Monday night at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time, I do a live radio show on Amazon Music's platform called AMP. It's a live radio platform. We can actually play songs from different artists. And what I do every Monday night is I spotlight a drummer, or in this case, a few different drummers for this particular episode. And I'll go through that drummer's body of work, select some of my favorite drum tracks that that drummer has recorded. We talk about their gear, talk about their history. And occasionally, like in this episode, we have interviews either with those drummers or with drummers adjacent to the ones that we're talking about. And this week, I've got the current drummer for Chicago, Walfredo Reyes. So, if you want to catch the show on Monday nights at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time, it's super simple. You just go to dialadrummer.net slash amp, A-M-P. Now, if you've already got the amp app, It'll take you right to my profile page. You can follow me from there. And every time the show comes on, you'll get a notification. You can also call into the show when we open up for callers. But if you don't have the app, that link will take you to whichever app store you need to be able to get the AMP app. And you can listen to us every single Monday night live. And... This conversation was so good, we decided to go ahead and carry it over to Dial-A-Drummer this week. So without further ado, here's my brand new buddy, Walfredo Reyes Jr. from the band Chicago. Hey there, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Drum Corner Radio. I'm Brian Stevens, and it's so great to have you here on the AMP platform. We've got an incredible guest that I'm going to bring in in just a moment to talk about some incredible music. And just like in the past weeks, we always spotlight a drummer each week. In this case, we're going to talk about a few drummers, but one very special drummer. And I really appreciate you for tuning in to Drum Corner Radio. Before I bring my guest in, I want to tell you how I got to the subject of this week's episode. So last month, I spent an entire week, I had to learn 45 Chicago tunes for two shows. Yeah, a lot of work for two stinking shows, right? <laughs> so uh, I took an entire week, learned 45 tunes. The guy who was a musical director, he, he, uh, his only directive was uh, learn them just like the record. 
not an easy thing to do, right? Not in a week. And then we spent the next week rehearsing the band, about five days, rehearsing an all-star Atlanta band for two shows. And I got to say, as much as I thought I knew Chicago music, it really, I grew up on this music. Being born in 1972, their 70s period wasn't as popular with me as their 80s period. I mean, come on, 80s Chicago. I was right in that middle school, junior high school age where Every other couple skate at the skating ring on Friday and Saturday nights was a Chicago tune. And so, yeah, so that music, uh, whether it was couple skating or it was in movies like The Karate Kid, like that music was everywhere when I was in school. And so to have to learn these songs and not learn them the way I remembered them, to sit down with the original recordings and a blank piece of paper and have to make drum charts for 45 songs, note perfect, was a, quite a task and quite an education. And so tonight we're going to talk about the music of Chicago the band. And, you know, it's an interesting enough conversation if we just play some songs and talk about some drummers. But I'm going to up the ante on this conversation because I'm going to bring in to this conversation the current recording and touring drummer for Chicago, a band that's been around for 55 years. On the line right now, I've got Walfredo Reyes Jr. Walfredo, say hello to the people. Hello, everybody. I'm good, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. This is huge, dude. You have no idea how excited I've been the last the last two days, definitely, that we've been pitching messages back and forth. I'm just crossing my fingers going, please don't let him get food poisoning. Please don't let like his internet connection go down. <laughs> <laughs> Which is easy to do these days, right? It, it is. It is. We're tethered to our internet connections. And, and thanks to the internet, you can be here with, with me, like virtually. And you can be here with everybody that's listening listening to Drum Corner Radio right now. Let me tell you, my first the first time I got to see you play, you may not even remember this. It was sometime in the early 90s because I was in college, and my friends and I, uh, half of them worked at PV Electronics, so we made the trek up to Memphis to see an all-day set of master classes with Sean Lane on guitar Jeff Berlin on bass, and you were the drummer. Do you even remember that? I remember very well. Yeah, actually, you know, I'm, we're, that was not supposed to happen. I was just supposed to do a clinic, uh, a drum clinic, and then I was gone. I went to Beale Street to actually learn about Al Jackson and all that. Then I got a call and said, hey, man, your drum set is set up already. Can you, you want to jam with these guys? And I went, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I went back and, and we jammed. I, I, I don't remember much about it, but it was fun. Jeff Berlin, Sean Lane, they were really nice guys and no pressure and a lot of fun. Yeah. And I just saw within the last six months, probably someone finally posted a video of that day to YouTube. And I went back and watched it. it. You know, in my mind, I remember it in pretty vivid detail. 
But to go back and actually see it on YouTube from someone's seat, it was as good, if not better, than I remember it. <laughs> I got to watch it myself. I'll probably be a little critical of myself. But, you know, the, the crazy thing is um, <clears throat> that was uh, the 90s. I think I, uh, be, I, I knew Jeff Berlin before that because I played with uh, Claire Fisher and I've jammed in different places. I, I actually, I jammed with Jeff Berlin and Neil Schoen at the guitar, LA guitar show. And that was uh, pivotal because uh, that's, that's when Neil Schoen and I got to know each other. And at that time, his business manager became the mother of my kids. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. From that jam and that the jam that we did, um, it, it was 1987, 88, uh, with Jeff Berlin and Neil Sean. We just played cream songs. That's it. Okay. So we just played cream songs. And then, uh, of course, I, I, play, I play with Jeff. So uh, when that 1990 clinic came in, Jeff went, let's get Wally back in here. <laughs> he can handle. He can throw him anything. Yeah, you, I think you, I think you guys did. Uh, I have to go back and see exactly what it was that you played, but I think there might have been a, a, at least one cream tune, and there were several other things. But it was it was nuts. It was for so for you, music really is life. I mean, music is responsible for so much of the life that you have, including who you married. Exactly. Like everything has to do with music. Um. I mean, that's a good way to put it. Um, I grew up in a family of musicians, uh, and then we left Cuba when I was five, and then uh, Puerto Rico, I, we went to Puerto Rico, where my dad was the uh, working drummer, sessions during the day, and nightclubs and showrooms at night. And then when I was 12, we moved to Las Vegas, and he did the same thing. And uh, I was 12 at that time, and, um, and in Puerto Rico... You know, as a kid, I used to mow lawns and how crazy if I tell you that with my own money that I gather was 10 bucks for mowing the lawns in my neighborhood. I went to Jemco and bought CTA and second, I bought cream, Disraeli gears. Get out of town. Yeah, I was 12 years old. You went with your own money and purchased an album for a band that would become your employer decades later. I know, and and uh, and that's really crazy. Uh, so I had the posters of Chicago in my wall, and then the third album that I bought was Abraxas, oh, which was Santana, which later on, yeah, you uh, didn't. Have, so for people that don't know, I, I'll do this because you're you're way too humble to do this. For for people that don't know, to give a little backstory, if you don't know who who Wally is. Walfredo has recorded and toured and or toured with Santana. Let's just go ahead and start as high as you could possibly get, right? Santana, Traffic and Stevie Winwood, another amazing, both band and, and his solo stuff is impeccable. Uh, Jackson Brown, Gloria Estefan, Ricky Lee Jones, Richard Marks, Smokey Robinson, Joe Sample, Boz... I could be, I could spend the entire hour just listing your credits. And you come from a family who your father, Walfredo Sr., was an in demand percussionist. 
just to not bury the lead here, your brother, Daniel, is the current percussionist in the Zach Brown band. So you're right. a family of percussionists, and you also just happen to smoke on drum set as well. Yeah, and now my daughter plays percussion and is the vocalist with George Benson. Oh, goodness. <laughs> you're a whole other generation <laughs> is I know. getting to travel the world and make great music. That's amazing. I know. I'm very proud of her. She's a great singer, vocalist, and then also plays percussion. And uh, so, yeah, it continues. And I always tell the people, the older you get, the more the more names you add to your resume, because this is my this year is Chicago's 55th year. But it's my 50th as a professional musician. So I started when I was 16 in Las Vegas in the Musicians Union. My dad co-signed for me. So I started out as a percussionist playing percussion, congas, bongos, Debbie Reynolds, and then, you know, drums and percussion. So, you know, when I say percussion, I never split up drum set and Latin percussion. And I played everything, you know, legit percussion, timpanis, marimba, tambourine, drum set, marching drum, symphonic, all styles, all percussion. So um, basically... A better word would be arithmetist. Yeah. So you're arithmetist, and whatever it takes, I'll make it. I'll make the sound. Uh, so you know, I um, I started out really early, and it goes on and on and on and on uh, in Las Vegas. Then I moved to LA, and and all of a sudden, it down on me like, oh my god, fifty years playing professionally <laughs> flies by, right? Uh, flies by, man really does. If I didn't know what your age was, both by your appearance and the energy that you have on stage, I, I wouldn't put you anywhere near your 60th decade of life. You're, I know. You, you are much younger, both in appearance and definitely in your attitude than uh, I would have ever guessed. Do you feel like it's the music that keeps you young? Yeah, absolutely. Music has a lot to do with it. Uh, family is another one. You know, I want to be around. I always said, I don't want to be in a wheelchair when I have grandchildren. I want to play ball. I want to kick the ball and play baseball and all of that. I don't want to be, um, you know, life will throw you curves and all that. I understand. But my, my father is almost 90 and I was just with him in Concord, California. And we were just listening to drummers and to all the young, he knows, my dad at 89 knows all the new young players, you know, like that are on Instagram and yeah. this guy and that guy. He's watching them all, learning from them all. We uh, we played together in the, in one day together. He told me, man, you got to check out the snare, uh, stainless steel snare. You got to take this. You throw the snares off and it's a timbale. You put the snares off on and it sounds like Stuart Copeland and and Steve Jordan, you got to take it, use it, you know, uh, you know, so it's like the energy, uh, of the past history and the new young players, because there was, so there's always going to be an evolution of new drummers. Like it has always been, uh, taking the past and, and recycling it into something new, you know what I'm saying? And fresh. Of course, of course. Well, let's talk about the past for a second. So you bought that Chicago Transit Authority album with your own money. 
Danny Seraphin was the drummer. He's the founding one of the founding members and the original drummer of this band. Do you remember that far back, what it was about his drumming that maybe stood out to you or that you pulled from when you listened to those records? Well, absolutely. And I'll tell you what happened. Uh, you know, I decided to start drumming at age 12, and I was listening to the music of my era, what I call, you know, the radio station. Now, with that being said, my my mom was in the living room listening to salsa records, Latin, you know, uh, all the, the, the Latin salsa, what we call salsa today. And then my dad was a jazz fan. So basically he had the Big Ben albums, Louis Belson, Buddy Rich, Charles Lloyd, Jack DeJanelle, Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, and all that. So from my room, you had, for example, the Guess Who, okay? <laughs> yeah. So the, the Guess Who, okay, so now... Uh, uh, you know, you had like uh, bands that were like, you know, like hard rock guitar and all that. My dad was not too crazy about guitar and fuzz guitar. So Jimi Hendrix, yeah. Cream, even though the drummers were really great, he really didn't care. But when he heard Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears, he came to my room and said, who is that? Yeah. And I said, that's Danny Serafin with Chicago. And he goes, that guy has it all <laughs> because, because uh, he heard jazz, he heard classical music, he heard rock, funky, R&B. So he recognized that. He also loved Bobby Columbia. Yo, and yes. then later on, I played Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and he went, wow, that guy, Carl Palmer. So he liked that kind of, so those three guys, in 1969 and 1970, where the bridge that my dad and I, we were listening to that music together. Now, I would actually play Led Zeppelin, and even though John Bonham was great, my dad necessarily didn't like the music, right? Uh, but I did. And so, like, uh, so what was Chicago bridged my father and I together. That's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. There's some there was some something in that music that that spoke to him that allowed you two to connect. That's that's exactly. awesome. Well, let's play one of these older Chicago tunes. And I'd asked you uh before the show to to pick a few things. And part of this show is to spotlight drummers and to uh, hear their work and to talk about what they do. So let's listen to a little bit of what Danny Serafin was doing back then. I'm going to play the the Chicago track Beginnings, and then we'll talk about it. All right. All right. So this now, if you're listening live, it's kind of a uh, it's a long song. It's about six minutes and twenty seven seconds. Hang in there because there's a ton of great music in this. This is Beginnings from Chicago. So that's Beginnings by Chicago. And not only is that Lickapalooza, because Danny Serafin is in full effect on that, it's also Percussion Palooza. By the end, I, I think they're playing everything, including the kitchen sink uh, there at the <laughs> end. It's, it's a great, great tune. So in kind of hearing that song again and listening to it, what, what are the memories that come back to you when you hear that recording? The first time I heard that song, it was playing on my parents' radio in their bedroom. I came to talk to my dad, and that song was playing, and I froze until the end because I had no idea who it was. 
And then I heard it and I went, oh, I got to get that. And so basically that was the beginning of me buying the first uh, album. I, I really, you know, we were like five kids, so I didn't want to ask my dad for a lot of money. You know, I was not one of those guys. My parents, thank God, told me, go out there and earn your money. Yeah. If you play music, play music or do whatever job. So I, I mow lawns and I like gardening. So I made a little bit of money when I was 12, 13. And uh, so I bought my first album, CTA. And then, uh, you know, uh, my dad dug the, the band and beginnings, Rubber Lamb, Peter Cetera and uh, Terry Katz were the main voices of Chicago, the main singers. Um, so like, you know, in 1974, uh, fast forwarding when I was in Vegas, Chicago played in 1974 in Las Vegas convention center. So I went to see them and that's the first time I saw them and they had Lauchi de Oliveira with them, which was a percussionist. Mm -hmm. So they added percussion. And, uh, so I was digging on Lauchir and, and Danny, but even back then I learned something that. Chicago was not playing exactly what they did on CTA. So the tempos were a little bit different and Danny was playing different fields. So then I realized it's still beginnings. It's still Chicago. It's still the same players, but players that are artists and artists, Picasso didn't paint the same painting for 30 years. He painted and went on to the next painting because the creative process grows on you. So like I learned that much. So that's why even today when people say, but you're not playing exactly like the record. Well, that's why what I go by the leader. So beginnings is Robert Lamb's song. There's other songs that are Jimmy Pankow's composition. And when Jimmy says to me, no, don't play this, don't play that. Let's do it a little faster. Let's do it a little slow. You know, right now is 2022. And they feel the song maybe a little different. And even though we're paying respect to the song, we're playing the same chords and I'm playing uh, as close as possible to the iconic grooves and feels of Danny and, and Tris, the leaders might not want it that way. Right. So, so uh, for example, beginnings right now, we're playing a little faster. Oh, So it's not that slow. So just like Sting did it with Police, and you go to see police and all of a sudden it's like, Jesus, they're playing so much faster. And Stuart is not playing the same beat, but it's still the same song. So like uh, artists tend to do that. So like uh, beginnings, uh, Robert wants more groove and less fills, even though Danny in those days did what he did, what you just finished listening Back in 1974, he was not even playing that many fills like he did on the original recording. So even Danny, the, these guys were young when they recorded that. So when as they grew, their taste and concepts changed. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, of course. I would imagine the faster tempo also cuts down on the notes per beat that you can get in sometimes <laughs> you know absolutely some of those absolutely. crazy sextuplet things and stuff are a little harder to wedge in if the tempo starts creeping up a good bit right so so you know uh i actually when i started playing drums because i was playing percussion with tris uh and tris 
well, let me let me say one thing. Danny Serafin and Tristan Bowden later on, you know, I, I bought CTA nineteen seventy, but later on, like in the I don't know, seventy-three, something like that. I became a fan also of Tris when he was with Kenny Loggins. Oh yeah. So like and then in LA I met Tris and I actually worked with Tris on percussion and I saw him a couple of times with his own band that he used to have with Cecilia Noel, the Wild Clams. Uh, so you know, those two guys not only are drummers that play with Chicago, they they are drummers that I respect as drummers. I love what they have done. And basically, I'm I'm a fan. So like uh we still maintain contact. Uh a lot of people put drummers uh against each other, but the truth is in the world of drumming, you know, I communicate with all these drummers and we all communicate with each other. Like uh, the drummers before me with Santana, Michael Shreve, you know, um, Graham Lear uh, and dr- the drummers after me, Rodney Holmes and even Cindy Santana. I mean, you know, we all have a respect and admiration with each other. When you see drummers cutting each other and putting each other down, that is not a professional world of drummers because the baddest drummers they're all in this uh, respect each other pool. Right. And right. Uh, it's the world's coolest club if you want to be a part of it. I'm telling you, you said it perfectly. It's the world's coolest club. But as if you come in with negativity and hate, then you really realize that you must not be a professional because none of the baddest drummers, including from Steve Gadd, Neil Peart, Dennis Chambers, Dave Weckl, Vinny Caliuto. I mean, those guys are the humblest guys you can imagine. Yeah. And uh, so, like, um, you know, because right now on the internet, there's, I, I go in there and sometimes it's like, it's really crazy. And so, like, you know, I use the block button button more than <laughs> what I w- would love to, you know, like the 007 eject button on their car. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, any drama that comes in with like, like stupidity, it's like, I don't have time for that. So I block, you know, like the other day I put something of Chicago. Imagine this. I put something with Chicago. It has like, I don't know, thousands of of likes and all that. And this drummer goes, yeah, but you're no Ringo. Oh, gee whiz. Okay. You know, I don't have time for, I mean, what does that, first of all, Ringo wouldn't even criticize it because he's another idol yeah and according to greg bissonette which i'm I'm a good friend he's the nicest most positive guy so you know another block um guy uh so anyways um i i love and i i'm so blessed to have not only playing the gigs that i've been playing like whether it was santana steve winwood for so long so the drummers before me uh, you know, Muscle Shoals drummer and Jim Gordon, Jim Capaldi, yep. and then the drummers that from the 80s, uh, uh, JR, you know, to actually play the music that all those drummers did and then record new music with these guys. With Steve Winwood, I was on the road for 10 years and with Jim, which was a great friend of mine. And then now to be not only playing with Chicago, but to, you know, I bet you right now, if I text Danny and go, Danny, 
And this song on Chicago 17, what the hell was that feel you did? He'll explain it to me. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. It, it's that kind of beauty. That's awesome. That exists between us drummers. So for all of you out there listening, if you think that this is like a competition or com uh, it's more like a camaraderie and like you said, the world's best club. <laughs> it really is. If, if you want to be a part of it, it's it, it really is one of the easiest clubs to get into because all you have to do is love rhythm, love making rhythm of some sort on on anything. Being being a, a rhythmist, as you said, it doesn't exclude us into these camps of well, this guy is just an orchestral drummer, or this guy is just a rudimental drummer, or this guy is a, a drum set right. drummer. We have this incredible pool, uh, this wealth of rhythm on all of these instruments. I mean, percussion is one of the few things that you can pick up almost anything in the room that you're sitting in and turn it into a percussion instrument. You sure as heck can't do that with a guitar. Right. And, and I'll tell you, uh, Joe Samples, another artist that I work with, uh, every time that we had a gig, I invited drummer friends of mine. And Joe Sample, one time in the dressing room, he goes, man, what is it with you drummers? Every time, you know, you guys have drum powwows, drum circles, drum conventions, drum clinics, drum masterclass. There's none of that going on with piano players. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and he used to see it. He used to see, I, I can't believe, uh, you know, your drummer friends are coming to see you play. And any piano player that is coming to see me play, they stay at the bar over there criticizing. You know, their arms watching. crossed. They got their arms crossed. They got that scowl on their face. That's, yeah. That I could do it a little better than that scowl. Yeah. So even Joe Sample used to see that with drummers. And, you know, just blessed, you know, also to be, you know, with this, uh, a lot of people also tell Chicago, oh, you know, like they don't sound like the original, but no band sounds like the original. I mean, you got the Rolling Stones right now with Steve Jordan yep. and, uh, and Ronnie. They're not the originals and neither is Todd Suckerman with Sticks. Uh, neither is Santana, the original band. Neither is Journey, right. the original. And on and on and on and on and on, like about a hundred bands. But the thing is, once you don't have originals, uh, do you want to quit and that's it? Or because Journey is playing phenomenally and it sounds great and they're selling out yeah. and so is Sticks. And so like uh, in Chicago, the same thing. So uh, for every, I actually, luckily for me, the other day I was, I put a, you're my inspiration. I have some uh, videos that yes. I did with my cam. Yep. Uh, and I had like, uh, your, uh, your, my inspiration came to like 1 million something. And for that 1 million, there was like about five hate males, you yeah. know? Yeah. And you're always, so always going to get that. Unfortunately. Yeah. I, I figured out it was like zero, zero dot zero, 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 one percent. So that's not that bad, you know. No, not at all. Well, when you think about when you think about just music in general, no matter what genre it is, no matter what artist we're talking about, um, when we're talking about real people playing real instruments 
and 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 really breathing life into an otherwise lifeless item. Um, I can't I can't really say that I as much as I may love a particular kind of music or a particular artist. If I've seen them play live, I don't know that I want to hear it exactly like the recording. Maybe the first time, maybe, but it's kind of, it's fun to hear it a little different, to hear something different, a little more life. But definitely like 10 years in or 20 years in, the 40th time I've seen somebody, I want to hear something different. I think most people are like that. And and most musicians, obviously, they're going to want to breathe some because music being life i i agree it's the music's going to change as you change and you grow it has to yeah and and that's that's the thing that is hard for a lot of people sometimes on records you know like there's two ways uh uh of recording you either record uh, what I call a produced performance, like editing, stopping going, using uh, uh, rhythms from different tracks of the song you recorded, pasting together or overdubbing or a documented performance, which, by the way, uh, you know, on the new record that, that we, we uh, because I'm not really good and it was recorded uh, during the pandemic, I, I recorded from the beginning to the end either the first take, the second take, and send the files. So that's what I call the documented performance. And for these guys, for example, CTA, back then, they were young kids. They were really tight. And then they just lay down all together a documented performance. Right. And that's it. And it went down that way. So that doesn't mean that they're going to do it over and over and over and over like that, like feeling and doing it like they were 19 years old or 20 years old again for the rest of their lives. So basically nobody is like when you were in the 1970s, not even in the nineties or 2000, I'm a different person than the year 2000. You know what I'm saying? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, so uh, that's the point of why Chicago, even though they have to still play the songs, just like Santana and just like a lot of bands from the 60s and 70s, they're not the, the same people anymore. Right. Of so uh, a, a band that started in the 1990s has less of a track record, so it's easier to, uh, okay, I'm going to play how the song was in the 2000 or 1990s. But, you know, so, um, but it's for me per, as a person, I don't know why I've been blessed to actually have played with like all these iconic artists that I was a fan of. And I happened to join Jackson Brown tour and, uh, uh, you know, play with, with Santana and Steve Winwood and Lindsey Buckingham and, and Boss Cags. And, and I'm going like, wow, I, I like, I love the drummers and the musicians that played in these bands. And then now being with Jimmy Pankow and Lee Lockney and Robert Lamb. And sometimes I just sit in the bus, uh, say like with Jimmy, which is an incredible writer and incredible arranger of the Chicago horns. And all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about the restaurant last night and all that. And I actually go, damn, this is 
the Jimmy Pankow <laughs> that, that that play actually a lot of percussion and 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 the albums and arranged the horns and and composed so many hit songs. I go, oh, Jimmy, tell me again the story of when you guys moved to L.A. as a band, or tell me how was it when you guys arrived in Japan? And it's just fascinating, really. It's like I I have the best chair off and on stage for sure. Yeah, for people that aren't intimately familiar with the history of Chicago. Uh, there's a great film. I just watched it again this afternoon, and knowing that we'd be talking. Uh, back in 2016, Chicago actually put out a movie called Now More Than Ever. And if you go to Amazon, there's a few places on, online that you can stream it and rent it and watch it. And it really goes through the history incredibly well and tells the story only as the guys who were there could tell it. Uh, you know, there there was rocky periods, and they don't sh- they don't shy away from talking about those at all, which I I admired that. There's a transparency to that I really d- did admire. Uh, you know, there was a rocky period there in the '80s when when David Foster came in and they started doing very produced songs. They were huge hits. But while we're talking about the drumming of Chicago, you know, Danny Seraphin was definitely. Uh, a big template for that first phase. But then you get this whole middle phase where you got amazing drummers like Carlos Vega and J.R. Robinson and Jeff Picaro. On that film, the Now More Than Ever film, there's a great story about Danny Seraphin hearing that Jeff Picaro was at the studio recording on a Chicago tune and he's, you know, looking for a gun. He's like so mad. <laughs> and I'm sure it wasn't funny at the time. But it was kind of it was kind of humorous to a certain point to to know that uh, that there was there was craziness afoot. Fast forward through that period, we get to the next era, and then Tris comes in, and it's again it's a bit of a reset, but it's in in some ways it was sort of um, some of the best of both eras up to that point. You know, Tris definitely. Uh, because he had so much studio experience and had played so many, so many albums, he had that precision. But the guys got chops too. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, it's really difficult unless you're in the business because um, when the record company basically it's like your bank. So I'm sure you belong to a bank, right? Mine particular oh, yeah. is Chase. But if Chase doesn't want to give me a loan or deal with me, what do I do? Put the money under my 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 uh, my bed? No, I'm going to go to Bank of America. I'm going to go to another bank that offers what it offers. So when you actually do a record deal and the record company puts a producer in charge to bring in the hits to the bank, uh, he does what he has to do. And that's when conflict sometimes happens. Sure. I've been in LA. I don't want to like really talk about this too much, but I've gotten calls and it's like a war call. Hey man, I need you to come and do this session because I can play with a click and I can play with a click or without a click yep. and still make a groove. But, um, but just the fact that you can do both or do anything, you know, uh, they call me in and all of a sudden, there's a, a track and I'm, 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 I'm learning the track and I'm playing with the track. And all of a sudden in the booth, there's a guy, a young guy 
And when I go there to say hi, he goes, yeah, I'm the drummer with the band. Hmm. And I'm going, oh, hi, man, how you doing? And I feel awful because why isn't, why isn't he in here instead of me? And, and uh, they're not going to put my name on the, on the record and they're going to put his name on the record. And that was the deal. I just get paid money and do my track and leave. Yeah. And about what happened, maybe the guy was not used to playing with clicks or playing what the producer was telling him. So that's probably what happened a lot of times with David Foster wanted a specific thing. And then whatever conflicts happen, you know, it's the, it's in the history books. Uh, Tris comes in and Tris, I mean, I love Tris from um, so many records, actually, not just Kenny Loggins. Um, and I tell you, when I came into Chicago in 2012 as a percussionist, like Tris was like, you know, the pocket was like uh, what a lot of people don't realize. Uh, you can not only be have to be a great drummer, it's the consistency, yep. the discipline to play the same tempo, the same energy, the same parts and help the band over and over and over eight months out of the year, every show. So it's not going to be like, man, this guy's great. Yeah. For two weeks. And then it goes downhill. That that's the kind of, dip, that's what, what brings the man's and the boys, the difference, for because sure. there's a lot of amazing drummers. And all of a sudden during the second week, after they learn the show, they start freaking out and start overplaying or changing the tempo or they're bored and it takes a professional to actually give the band and give the music, the song, what it needs for years. Yes. <laughs> Not just for a tour for years over and over and over and over and over and over and over. You want to overplay? You do that at home. <laughs> Yeah, we're not getting paid. <laughs> exactly. So, so you know, like you want to, you know, like luckily Chicago gives me and Ray Eastless our percussion is a solo, and Steve Winwood did too. But if there is no drum solo, I tell you, going back, Santana, I used to use, I used to do three drum solos with Santana, um, and Soul Sacrifice, a long solo, uh, a solo with the percussionist and a solo with the bass player. Yet, when I auditioned with Santana, he never auditioned me on a drum solo, ever. And nobody has auditioned me on a drum solo ever because the main thing is, like what I preach over and over, is the, the right tempos of the song, a groove that feels good with this particular band and what you're doing at that moment. Not the groove that you played 20 years ago, that might not work now. The groove that is now that feels good and the styles. Drummers over and over and over. I get a lot of young kids, some students graduated from Berkeley and this and that. Man, I didn't get the gig. But, you know, if you play amazing and have amazing technique and yet you don't know styles, uh, you know, if you, if you play 30-second notes, the speed of light, and you cannot know the difference between a Texas shuffle and a Chicago shuffle. Uh, I mean, you're going to have problems. Uh, hey, can you play a halftime Bernard Purdy shuffle? Uh, I have no idea what that is. 
you got to go back to school. Of course. No other instrumentalist plays a three and a half or four minute song to straight 30 second notes from a drummer. Nobody. Zero. Unless, of course, the band, like like there's some heavy metal band, speed metal, that you better have that down. So it's okay. If that's what it takes, then you got to do that. But, you know, drum solos, it's like an additional thing. It's, it's, it's great if you can do a drum solo, but it's not the main thing because all the drummers uh, from the beginning of music and the history from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, all the drummers that created songs were the groove drummers that are on the radio, on the hit songs and all that, you know, from Phil Collins, even Neil Peart, he did an amazing drum solo, but his grooves is what's important. Oh, of course. It's, and that's the songs that were hits for them were primarily hits because of that groove. Exactly. They, they were good songs, but they felt good. They made you they made your something happen viscerally in your body. When you hear Tom Sawyer, something something about that is magnetic in that exactly. groove. It makes you want to listen to it. Exactly. You know, when you hear Tom Sawyer, the very first, like I don't know, like eight bars or something like that, that is the magic. Whether you can do a drum solo or not, that's that's a plus. But the problem is when there's a lot of drumming because musicians really uh for example me as a percussionist i've been i play with a lot of drummers and and one of them was tris in Bowden that gave me the space mm-hmm. to compliment him so basically tris allowed me to compliment him by giving me space and there's a lot of instances in the past that i've played with some drummers that what am I doing here? All the space is taken. Right. There's only so much real estate. Only so much real estate, buddy. Exactly. Like So basically, I play cowbell on one every four bars or a tambourine on three, like two hits and eight bars because that's the only thing I could fit in to compliment. You know what I'm saying? Right. If you, of have, course. If you have meat and potatoes and it takes the whole plate, there's no room for anything else. Right, right. Take me to that day for a second. I'm curious. So you're sitting there, and you're touring with whoever you're touring with, recording with whoever you're recording with at the time. And the call comes to be the percussionist for Chicago. Take me to that day. How did that happen? Well, I'll tell you exactly how it happened, which is interesting. So I was playing with Lindsey Buckingham from 2007 to 11. So in 2011, there was an unfortunate situation that happened. It was Christmas, and we were about to go to UK for a tour, and then we were going to tour January, February, March, April. Uh, and the main guitar player we had we were we were four in the in a in the band, and the main guitar player had back problems and couldn't get out of bed, and it was really serious. And then Lindsay decided to cancel. So instead of hiring and training a whole new guitar player, uh, Neil was very, very important to Lindsay. And he still is. I mean, Neil knows everything about Fleetwood Mac, every note, every chord, every kind of string and guitar that ever was played in the band. Mm-hmm. And so like uh, by Neil not being able to do the tour, Lindsay canceled. So I started what I always do, freelancing. 
on drums, percussion in L.A. I was living in L.A. I took all these gigs. I started touring with El Chicano, the band from the 70s. Uh, tell her, tell her she's lovely. Oh, yeah. You know, El Chicano. And uh, so I was playing all over the place. And then my brother, Danny, uh, was playing percussion. But, you know, was starting to play percussion with Zach Brown Band off and on. And then the percussionist that was with Chicago at the time, Drew Hester, well, he, he had another gig and actually left Chicago. So Danny came in as a percussionist to play with Chicago, my brother Danny. Mm-hmm. And at that particular time, uh, which says a lot about the word timing, he, they, he was made uh, a member of Zach Brown Band. Oh, okay. So Danny called me and says, hey, man, I'm playing a percussion with Chicago, but I, I'm, I'm also playing percussion with Zach Brown, and, and I haven't told anybody yet, but they they're just made me a member. And if you can do this week for me with Chicago, it's like four shows. And I went, okay. So, of course, you know, I'm older, and I've lived Chicago. I knew what Laudita Oliveira did, and I knew yeah. everything that Danny did. So when I came in to do the show, I had certain notes to pay respect to Drew Hester and my brother. And then I came in and, you know, Chicago, this band right now, we don't sound check. I mean, hardly any rehearsal. So I learned the show and I met these guys 20 minutes before we went on stage. Oh man. So basically the equipment was set up. I uh, met Tris earlier on the day, but I met Robert Lamb Jimmy Lee and at that time Walt Parasader, twenty minutes before the show, mm. and uh, I asked the guys, "Is there anything you need me to do that I should know before I we go on stage and do the show?" And Walter went, "Yes." Uh, he took me on the side and went, "I want you to go out there and have a ball, man. Right. Just, just have fun." Yes. And I went, uh, "Okay." And so the first show. I was just observing, listening, playing what I, you know, should be playing. And by the time the second show, the next day came in, I threw the cheat sheet away and basically had a ball, you know, like look at the guys, have fun, smile, and just played what felt good at that particular time. And on the third night, Robert Lamb came into the dressing room and said, hey, Wally, can I talk to you? And I said, well, here it comes. This is the list of the things that that he probably wants. Hammer's coming down on you. <laughs> yeah, okay. So here we go. So I'm doing this wrong. Don't do this. Do that. I like this. I don't like that. Okay, here we go. But he, he, he uh, leaned in the wardrobe case, and he goes, uh, I'm sure you get along with your brother and everything, because I know he's busy with Zach Brown Band. But, man, you sound like you've been with us forever. So if you want to hop in the bus and come with us, do it. And I went, well, of course, um, you know, I, I, I've been playing with you forever since CTA. (laughs) (laughs) The soundtrack of my life. (laughs) Yeah. I've I've been with you forever. And so like, uh, so that was the hiring actually kind of informal. You want to hop in the bus, Gus, you know? (laughs) And, um, and so like, uh, I did. And then, um, I, I played per, uh, percussion 2012 to 2018. I moved on drums 
the incident that happened with the, the bass player at the time and Tris that uh, gave notice in the band for different reasons. You know, that's their story. Sure. It was, it, they each have their own motives and um, it, we were doing a lot of road. And, uh, and basically uh, I started with Chicago 2018 and uh, I've been doing it ever since and uh, recorded the Christmas album a few years ago, Chicago Christmas album. And then we recorded a new album during the pandemic which makes me think, imagine if the pandemic would have been in 1970. Oh, yeah, of course. Nobody would have seen each other. Nobody. We recorded during the pandemic sending each other files. So imagine that. Yeah. I mean, the, the Internet is is the reason why we can stay. It's the reason why we're having this conversation right now. It's what, how we can connect. Yeah. Back then, exactly. there would have been nothing. Like exactly. zero, zero. So, so that has to do a lot with why things cannot be like 1970, 80, 90. It, it, it cannot be because yeah. the instruments, the microphones, the systems, MP3, records are coming back, but there's MP3. I mean, we're living in 2022, whether you like it or not, we are living in 2022. Yeah. That's it. Well, that, that's one of the beautiful things about art is that it constantly evolves. And in this case, technology's evolved with it to facilitate being able to continue to make that art. And a lot of people may not realize that there is a newer Chicago album, that there is new music from this band that's been around 55 years. So... Born for This Moment is the name of the album? Yeah, Born for This Moment. And with that being said, just like when you actually took Beatles 1960s and even Beatles 1970s after they were married and all that, you know, the lyric content becomes more mature and deeper. To me, Born for This Moment, I mean, even uh, putting myself like outside the band and drumming aside and all that, I mean, the lyrics of this album, I swear to God, I mean, it's just, the, I think, one of the deepest. I mean, the songs are amazing. Uh, we had uh, Joe Thomas produce the album, and I didn't even meet the engineer and the producer. I was sent the files, and I recorded. At the beginning of the pandemic, let me say, I didn't know we were going to be off for a year and a half. Yeah. So I actually canceled my wedding with my wife. It was going to be March 21st. We finished Las Vegas, got sent home, and I was disappointed. And I thought, oh, my God, we're going to be two months off. And, of course, the summer went by, the fall went by. But then Robert started recording with different friends. And then he got uh, Joe Thomas uh, with his engineer. And before you knew it, there was a Chicago album, so they sent me the files of the song, some with a loop, some with a click, some with a, a demo, you know, with a drum part. Mm -hmm. Some of them were finished. Some of them were not that finished. And I actually tracked uh, what I tracked. You know, in some songs, I'm not in it, and some songs uh, were taken. Uh, there's a song there that was done already, so they put the song on the album. Uh, but, you know, I'm very blessed that I did uh, like about four or five songs 
in my studio. And then the rest was like uh, samples and, and loops that I sent. So it was fun. It was, it was fun and it's really great. Well, because some of the people that will be listening to this are drummers that either have home studios or are looking to put home studios in, some of the people that listen to these shows are engineers and producers. Tell me a little bit about your recording setup that you have that you used for this album. Man, it was so challenging. I can tell you, Brian, uh, as soon as I realized that we were going to be off for a year, I said, I have to reinvent myself. So I, I'm not the best technic, technic guy mm-hmm. as far as uh, technology. So I had Logic Audio on my computer already, but didn't know that much about it. So all of a sudden, the problem that I had was that I couldn't get a teacher to come to my place because of COVID. And so, like, I had to start communicating with people. Uh, there was many guys in the band that helped me uh, try to get, you know, learn really quickly right. logic, audio. And so then I got enough to where I recorded the drums, uh, got all the microphones, uh, and then I, w- I learned how to record the drums as best as I could and send the files. You know, I'm not a mixer. I don't get the most amazing drum sound for that. I have a guy in LA, which did my first two CDs, Johnny Silas Cranfield. He does that for me. Uh, but I just learned this is my drum performance. You guys do the EQ and the plugins and all that. So that's what I did. So I started recording uh, mostly Audix microphones that I had. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, uh, in my third floor of my house in Newport, Kentucky, where I live right now with my wife. And, uh, and then the producer said, man, I love this, uh, you know, or send me another take and uh, that kind of thing. And then there was a couple of tunes that we recorded once we started touring. Uh, I did two tracks, which is the last track of the album. And uh, if this is in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, right on stage before the Chicago show. Oh, wow. So actually, the rhythm section recorded the moni- our monitor guy with an empty showroom recorded us, and then we all sent the files to the producer. So those two tracks were done on stage. Instead of sound checking, we recorded. And by the way, that's the way we did the Christmas album. Oh, really? Just everything on the deck? Yeah, right on the stage before the show, we recorded the song. And the drum track sounded great, and these guys either overdub or redid their parts, but the drum track was great, and from there on, they took it. So right now, I guess you can record from anywhere. Just about. Yeah, yeah. Between digital consoles out in a live world, you know, front of house or monitor consoles, and then, of course, you know, the technology's gotten inexpensive enough that you can pull something together to get some decent drum sounds. If you've got good drums that are tuned well and you know how to hit them, that there's a whole decades worth of lessons right there how to hit them. <laughs> well, and that's a good point. So like the the main thing is forget about the technology for a second. Does it sound really great or doesn't it? And that's your ears. So my my biggest investment I always say is my ears because 
I can identify, or if it doesn't sound good, just like when you're eating dinner, you know, you have a cappuccino and the milk is not good. You go, huh, something's wrong with this cappuccino. I don't know. I'm not going to drink it. So basically it's the same thing with the sound of the drums. Uh, if you feel it, uh, then, and, and it feels good and it tastes good and it sounds good. Most likely it's good. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, so basically that's, that's my, if it doesn't sound good, I cannot send the file. So I get help. Okay. What am I doing wrong here? Why is this doesn't sound? And, uh, you know, and that I tell you, that's why I tell kids today, uh, if I would, was going to tell, uh, say an advice to a young Walfredo Reyes Jr. 20 years ago is start expanding versatility and be versatile. Not only drum set, but percussion, songwriting, learn how to record yourself, learn how to do it yourself. Because today, uh, those sessions with Cartage in a recording studio, one whole day to get the drum sound, those days are gone. I mean, people send me a track and go, Wally, put drums on this. So what does that mean exactly? That means I'm going to play drums in my drum set that is already set up and tweaked. Yep. I'm going to be the engineer, and then I'm going to send you the files. So it's like... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's incredibly empowering if you embrace that this is the paradigm we're in now. Exactly. This is how things are done. And if you embrace it and jump in with both feet, you you learn as you go. And and I, I reiterate exactly what you're saying because I know I've got a couple of students that are listening. You learn as you go with whatever you have in terms of technology and gear, at, whatever you have in that moment. You learn to do with it what you can and you just grow. You you grow. And that's a great point. Songwriting, not just uh, – the mistake that I made, I know, for myself all through college was focusing so much on the drums that it took me a long time past college to start to learn to play guitar or piano or any of that stuff so that I could write songs. That's an incredible piece of – of information. We're talking around this new album. I really think we should be playing one of these tunes, Wally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, please. Uh, we're going to play a tune off of the new Chicago newest Chicago album Born for This Moment, and this tune it's a throwback to the 70s in terms of the sound. You're going to hear things about it that are very reminiscent of that 70s period. You're also going to hear all of the evolution of this band in this one tune called Our New York Time. Here we go. As we listen, sitting here listening to New York Time, that's take number two. Yeah, that I did. And and it, it's amazing to me. Now, how much did you sit and listen or live with the tune before you sat down to even do the first take? Oh, a lot. Like, you know, like uh, before I even played, I, I listened and listened and actually memorized the tune to where the point was. Because Chicago, Santana, C. Winwood, they don't give you no music. I, I read more in college uh, charts, big band charts and all yeah. that. But, you know, they sent me the song. I learned the song. I listened to the demo. The demo was a little mechanical because it's like drum drum part yeah. from a, a machine or something. And then um, then I actually asked him, do you want me to imitate the demo? And he goes, well, you know, we like the demo, 
goes, well, I'll, I'll play similar. So I played one. So by that time, I already knew the song really well. Right. So I played the demo, which was a little more, no drum fills, just kind of like the beat. And then I sent it to them. And then uh, Joe goes, oh, give me one, taking a little more chances. And then this is the one. With some of the other tunes that are on that record, it was the workflow pretty much the same? Yeah. Let me see. Um, except for the two songs that are on that we did on stage, uh, those those one had a chart, by the way, because it's Lee. I had a trumpet chart. Okay. Uh, on and then uh, and then the last song on the album, it was a little demo. Very very. I, I really didn't see the whole vision of the whole song yet, but I just played the, that groove that is on there. And basically, hopefully I told them you can do whatever you want, edit, whatever, right. this is the groove, but it came out. Okay. And they liked it. I mean, you know, you try to please, you know, like, like, like in a restaurant, you try to please as much as possible. Sure. And they might send back the plate and goes, this is too spicy. Or can you add a little more salt or, can you take the partially off my plate, you know? Yes. And and it's basically, that's what I feel like that I do for a living sometimes. Well, if anybody, if anybody's curious as to what Chicago sounds like now, this, this is a great representation of what has evolved from the late 60s, early 70s to now. It really is, I mean, the, across the entire record, but especially this one tune in our New York time, it really is a great way to listen and see how the band has both evolved, but at the same time, just there's there are things about this band, like the horns, like the songwriting, that are singular to the band. I mean, it, there's nothing that sounds like Chicago music. There's just not. You know, uh, I want to make a point because a lot of, critics out there which is is the minority thank god uh say oh this is like a like a tribute band you know let me tell you something there's a lot of bands out there that have less players than three original members but not only that robert lamb and jimmy uh, panko are not only chicago and the whole rock and roll hall of fame but they are in the songwriters hall of fame those two guys, Jimmy Pankow and Robert Lamb. So to be on the Hall Writers Hall of Fame, there's a lot of bands that have one original member not in the songwriters. Right, of course. And some of them didn't write the hits. These two guys have written so many hits. That's why oh, of course. We, we do two-hour shows with an intermission of hits, and there's still about 10 hits that we don't do. Yeah, it would it would be virtually impossible to go down. Even if you if you just said, "Look, all we're going to do, we're not going to play deep cuts. We're not going to play new music. We're just going to play the hits tonight." You would be hard pressed. You couldn't do it. I wouldn't think you couldn't get through an entire list of of all the hits. I mean, you you think about this: five consecutive number ones on Billboard 200. There's 20 top 10 singles on the Hot 100. So that's 20 songs. There's almost two hours worth of music right there. 10 Grammy nominations. Okay, so let's say we're just going to play all the tunes that, uh, for the next part, all the tunes that were uh, number ones, all the tunes that were Grammy nods, 
it'd be impossible to get through the entire list. And that raises an interesting question. The current set list right now, how do you guys pick the songs that make up whatever the current set list is? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question and a very good one. I learned a lot from Lindsey Buckingham's uh, way of putting a set list together because we would go into rehearsals just to see the effect of this song, number one, and then followed by this song. And then, oh, I don't know, but the energy worked. So the way Chicago puts the set list, for example, you cannot just play five ballads in a row. Put everybody to sleep. I mean, it would just be impossible. You know, so basically you start the show with a certain energy, then you play the ballads, then you play the ballet, and then we take a little intermission. We come back hard-hitting, you know, so basically it's an energy. It's not about just the song. It's about the energy flow, uh, the beginning, middle, and the ending. And then we end with 25 or 6 to 4. And that the pe- by that time, the people are not sitting down. They're no. all standing up. Of course. So, you know, you cannot make the people just basically stand up and all of a sudden, oh, we have to play this ballad. Uh, well, that will send the energy back down and they will sit down and then they will have to get back up. And so, you know, that is a, a magical thing to actually have set lists that work energy wise. Yeah. And so they have that going. You know, sometimes we do a 90 minute set in the in the casinos because they don't want the band to do long shows. Oh, yeah. But in there in order in order for Chicago to play all their songs. We would have to be like the Grateful Dead, play for four hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which they do, I think, you know, yeah. still. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you'd never get away with that in a casino. But that 90 minutes, the, the electronic locks on the doors, they come off and the doors open by themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we like, want the people to gamble. You know. <laughs> show's over, guys. <laughs> yeah, but you know, still, so it has to be a 90 minute effective, yes, emotional. You know, I always say I go out there with one thing in mind. Uh, like I told my daughter when she was at USC music, uh, getting her degree, you know, we are in the moving business, and she looked at me like, What goes like, yeah, I mean, you sacrifice yourself and study your instrument, all those hours of practice and lessons and try to master your instrument for one thing, to make the people out there move off their seat mentally, spiritually, and physically. Yes. I mean, if you don't move the people, whether you're playing jazz and they're sitting down and they're like, oh my God, you got to move the people, whether it's like mentally emotionally, spiritually, physically, they're just like in a frenzy dancing away. You know, I don't like when, when people come to me and go, Hey, Wally, uh, man, that, that, that foot technique that you use for the double bass drum, man, that's like, but you know, you know, what's a bigger compliment than that? When one time I remember playing with David Lindley and El Rayo X, uh, David Lindley, that used to be with Jackson Brown, steel guitar player, mm-hmm. uh, and lap steel guitar player. And we were playing this gig in Santa Cruz. And I saw this couple, like they just took a shower. They were like sweating, but like, I mean, soaking. Sure. And they were, came running to me. And then I looked back, like, are they coming to me? 
like, and all of a sudden I went, oh shit, they're going to hug me. And they, <laughs> and they, they were like soaking, soaking, soaking. And they, they wanted to hug me. And I went, oh my God, please. Like, you know, like completely soaking. And they went, oh my God, we love you. We love you. Like, oh, okay. Okay. And he go, man, you made us dance for like two hours yes. without stopping. We couldn't, we couldn't stop dancing. Now that's one of the biggest compliment that I ever got because I've achieved my job, you know, like, like that's it. That's what I want to do for a living. I don't give a shit if like people are saying, Oh, you use the, the, the molar grip. It's not right. And, and was that a paradiddle or a ratamacue? It's like, who gives a damn, you know, like uh, what I want to do, whatever is it that I'm drumming, are you dancing or are you moved by it? Yes. Yes. And yes. that's it for me, for that, me personally. That's I, I grew up with dancers, dancers in Las Vegas. And if the B was not right, those dancers would not move. But, you know, when I was playing and for I'm talking about way back when I was in the ninth grade, uh, I started playing percussion for these dancing schools that were a lot of dancers there. And of course, I play with like I played and work with Bob Fosse. Michael Peters, Kenny Ortega, those are all badass choreographers. Yeah. Th that's it. I mean, you got to move those dancers yep. and the beat has to feel good. And if the dancers move, most likely you'll move musicians, singers, audiences. And uh, it's either you're putting the right amount of salt, not too much salt or not enough salt. So you got to figure out how, how is it going to taste good? And because... What happens with drumming sometimes, and this is an advice for a lot of young guns out there that I was once, believe me, I learned this by mistake. Remember, too much salt on your eggs, you cannot take it back. It'll ruin the eggs. You cannot eat it, and you'll have to return the dish. Yes. There's no taking back. So, like, if you overplay, and, you know, sometimes you just cannot take it back. You're branded. Oh, my God, this guy's too busy. He's a great drummer. He feels good in this song and in this song and in this song. But in this song, he overplays. Next. Yeah. It only takes once, man. It only takes one And it's time. an unforgiving business, It's an, especially to the drummer. So, you know, I've watched, believe me, and studied the first time that I went to see, actually, I, I drove to L.A. because my friend Alex Acuna says, man, I'm doing a session here for Lee Rittenar. And guess who the drummer is? Steve Gadd. So I drove five hours Ooh. from Las Vegas to L.A. to be in that studio. And Carlos Vega happened to be there. I'd known him from high school. And so, like, Carlos Vega and I were there, and Steve Gadd drum set was set up. And I, we were there for about almost an hour and a half and they were discussing the music and they were doing this and they were saying this. Steve Gap never touched his drum set. I mean, so it was like we were dying to hear Steve Gap. But you know what? Finally, they're talking and they're messing around with the song. And what are we going to do here and the chords? Then I heard piano. I heard bass. Abraham Laboriel, Don Grusin. And Steve was just sitting there. And so, like, all of a sudden, go, Steve, you want to try one? He goes, Sure. And all of a sudden, it went like one, two, one, two, and that was like, oh my god, that sounded great. So I was telling Carlos Vega, if he would have been playing that fill over and over and over for an hour before he recorded it, 
it wouldn't have had the same impact. No, it would have been stale at that point. It would have been it would have been roped. They would have been sick and tired. Of yeah, that it's like, can you g- give me something else? So there's a there's a lesson right there that I learned really quickly. Uh, practice at home, get your sound together, and don't waste any notes. Basically, play with you know if if you don't even touch the tom-toms on the song, even though they they're sounding great. And that's what the song needs. That's what it is. Yeah. You don't have to play, you, uh, use every ingredient in your kitchen if you only need salt and pepper. That's it. I think that's a great way. That's a great way for us to wrap this, man. Gee whiz. If, if people didn't get anything else, which there's a ton in the last 90 minutes, just that one lesson at the end is worth every single bit of this. That's decades worth of experience. Well, thank you. All in one statement. And that I, I tell you, Wally, that one statement is going to save somebody's career. You watch. Well, you know, I'm, I'm just actually, it's, it's, I've learned this from other drummers that I've watched, you know, and I can mention so many. I'll, we'll be here for four hours, but... Um, you know, like all the recording drummers of all the songs, Motown, Al Jackson, Muscle Shoals, Bernard Purdy, you know, uh, Rick Murata, Harvey Mason, all the recording drummers, and then all the virtuoso drummers, Buddy Rich, Louis Belson, Billy Cobham, uh, you know, and, and, and on and on. There's a lot of drummers that are virtuosos that have to form a band yep. to feature their virtuosity. And then there's other drummers that play... The parts, uh, with that being said, like Jim Gordon, Ed Green, Jeff Percaro, that were just about the parts of the song. And even ballad drummers like uh, uh, Nigel Olson with Elton John. And, oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many that I can sit here all night long. But there were all lessons indirectly and directly that I've learned and to, to uh, lead me to this moment. Born for this moment. <laughs> Born for this moment. That's the new Chicago album, newest Chicago album. If you haven't listened to it, you really need to get it cranking up right now. It's on all of the streaming services, including Amazon Music. So just flip over to Amazon Music. You can take a listen to that. And if people are curious about what the band has been doing the last few years, especially because of the pandemic, I just learned today there's a brand new movie coming out that you guys have put together called Chicago 55, The Last Band on Stage. comes out September 30th. That's just in a few weeks. Tell me a little bit about that movie a second. Well, uh, Peter Pardini, which did the documentary, the other documentary that that you mentioned before, um, you know, captured... I mean, his obviously he was not going to do this filming because there was a pandemic coming. So he was in Vegas filming with us mm-hmm. while this whole pandemic was going down and down and down. And he basically filmed from the, the successful first uh, residency week and the, all the shows were sold out. And by the time we played the last two shows, there was like less than half people there. And the audience, even though the seats were all sold out and and everybody quit in Las Vegas and everybody, nobody was coming to play. And we literally were the last band to leave Las Vegas as a ghost town. 
and then the effect of what is it that we do because this band never ever has taken a, a year off right neither did i and so like basically uh we didn't know what to do uh and then it went on and on and on and on and on and it was like wow we're like so basically that's when we started writing the music and by the time it, it captures the effect of once in 2021 like i think it was june that we played the first concert it was like playing the first concert of your life ever like it was <laughs> reminiscing to where like wow i feel strange on my on stage i feel strange on my own drum set and the people were just like almost like uh, is this for real are, are are you guys gonna really really play even though there were there on open air concert i think we started in nebraska mm -hmm. and it was like uh the wildest feeling and it made me like i said on the documentary it made me i know me personally feel this see this taste this and never take it for granted because you know you go to work you know every day or you're like sitting on your drums like yes like another concert man it might not be ever again uh you might not be doing this so every time you do something whether it is to like kiss your loved ones uh sit on your drums and play it might be your last time so play like it's the last day on your life give it your best it, i don't care if it is a, a wedding a bar mitzvah a top 40 gig with five people on in the house, which I've done, you know, you're going to play drums in front of five, 50, 500, 5,000, just play your ass off and play your best and be your best musician, human being, drummer, always, because you never know when is the last time. And that's what I learned from the pandemic. Always be in the moment that... Uh I think that's a great way to leave this. Always be in the moment, especially when you're on stage. I, Wally, I really appreciate you being in the moment with me here. Thank you. It's been a real th thrill for me to get to talk to you about this. And uh, not only have I loved this band for so long, I've been a real fan of your playing for so long as well. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I really Well, really I'm delighted, and we shall do it again. Call me anytime, and... You know, I know, like you, we can both talk drums forever. So this could be a four-hour conversation, easy. Yeah, <laughs> and then we'd still be wondering when's lunch. Yeah, <laughs> so. we, we haven't even talked gear, drum heads, drums. I mean, well, we can go on and on and on and on. I know, I know. Well, thank you for your time. If people want to find out more about you, they can go to uh, Walfredo Rise Junior. dot com. That's your website. Yes, and they can also go com slash videos if you want to watch some of my Chicago and other artists' videos that I have there. There's some great ones of you more recently playing some of these songs, and it's it was great for me. I'm a Man is one of those where I, I looked at it and I was like, what is, what's Wally doing with this song now versus what was happening in the 70s with this song? It, there's a lot of those where it's nice to see how you're – paying homage to the history, but at the same time also putting your own spin on it. So yeah, WalfredoRiazJr.com. You can also find out about Wally's albums. I'm guessing those are probably, those two albums are streaming on all the services and stuff as well, right? Yeah, Wally World, the first one, and uh, Jamming at the Baked Potato, which was my kicks band, 
in between Chicago tours when I was living in LA. And it's just like covers and a fun performance, Life at the Baked Potato. Those are my, my two personal CDs. If you're listening, make sure that you pull those up and uh, and bookmark those. Put them in your regular rotation and listen to those as well. And man, this has been so far the best episode that we've had of the show, Walfredo. I'm telling you, this is this well, is amazing. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you, thank you. You're great. I feel like I've known you forever, but we had never met. <laughs> right, right. It, it it it's just it's just so warm and and the connection's immediate. I really appreciate your time, and uh, we're gonna have to do a part two, man. I've got so many questions, not just about Chicago, but so much of the rest of your history, and we'll we'll do a part two soon. All right. Okay, you got it. Thank you so much for having me, and health, love, and peace to everybody out there. Well, that was Walfredo Reyes Jr., an amazing drummer and an even better person. I really enjoyed uh, my conversation with him. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. And we're going to keep bringing you more episodes, more great drummers. If you really got a ton out of this, do me a couple of favors. Please share this with at least one of your friends. There's so much amazing information in this episode that you don't want to just keep it to yourself. And also, follow us on all the socials. We're easy to find. Dial a drummer pretty much everywhere, uh, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, you name it, we're there. Uh, make sure you follow us. That way you get notifications every time there's a brand new episode. And speaking of episodes, if you're not already listening live on Monday nights to my live radio show on the AMP platform presented by Amazon Music, just go to dialadrummer.net slash AMP. You can get everything you need to be able to listen on Monday nights and even call into the show. That's all I got for you this week. I have a very special friend that you're going to get to meet in the very next episode. So uh, until next time, I'll see you when I see you. Thanks so much.